uh, I have five older brothers. This just came up in a WhatsApp chat last night that uh, I'm their hero because I managed to somehow have my wife do all the work and I get to stay home. And as I as I'm I told my hero as well, though. <laughs> and as I told them, it it's all great except for the parts that really suck. And uh, some of the parts that really suck is uh, staying home with childcare largely blows. I mean, it, it's boring. You're changing diapers. When you're back in the States, there are no helpers. There are no cleaners. It's too expensive. So, you know, you're scrubbing toilets. You're cooking all the time. You're doing all of these household chores. Some people probably really enjoy being a homemaker. Uh, I thought it sucked. But the job had to get done. The economics of it were such that for us as a family, it made sense, so you do it. Um, but to my brothers, you know, I'm the hero. I'm the one that succeeded. My friend Bill is not your typical dad. I'm Bill Poorman. I moved here about four and a half years ago. Uh, we moved here with my wife's job. Uh, she is an executive with a Fortune 500 corporation from the Midwest of the American continent, U.S. Two kids, two teenagers. Um, been a stay-at-home dad for years now, for uh, at least 12 years. Bill is the first stay-at-home dad I have ever met in my life. Growing up in Singapore, it was pretty common to have a stay-at-home mom. My own mom quit her job after giving birth to my elder brother, Ethan, so she could take care of us while my dad worked. She only went back to part-time work when we were teenagers. I had a number of friends whose moms did the same. Today, there are probably fewer women who can afford to give up a full-time job to raise the kids, mostly because the cost of living has risen a lot since I was a child. But some still do make that difficult choice. Fathers, though? Fathers don't seem to face that dilemma at all. Most just default to work and leave their partners to figure things out on the home front. Which is funny because where I'm from, in Holland, right, for example, if, if a couple has kids, it's very normal for both parents to start working part-time because they both want to spend time with their kids and they both want to have a job, which makes perfect sense to me. Right? That's Nikolai. He and Bill are good friends. So I'm Nikolai. I moved to Singapore about 18 months ago, so I'm a year and a half in. Uh, I'm also a trailing husband. I follow my wife here for a career. I've been traveling around a little bit the last uh, couple of years. So I, I'm originally from Holland. I moved to the U.S. in 2006. was there for about two years and then moved to Paris, France, because uh, I met my wife back in the U.S. and she's French. And so we moved back to France and uh, we have a five-year-old. Uh, who loves Singapore and uh, who loves a good life here. The two of them are members of a rare subspecies of human known as the male trailing spouse. This means they are men who follow their expatriate wives to settle in a foreign country. Some find jobs, others take on the full-time responsibility of housework and childcare. So I was working in France before this, which is a little bit, um, it's not the most enlightened of cultures when it comes to uh, equality. Um, in France, people sort of expect that a woman stays at home to take care of the kids. It's, it's, it's less and less true, I would say, but I think there's still this sort of a macho base, right? Matches roots in Latin culture in general, where, where the woman is still very much the caretaker. When you tell people, so I'm gonna give up, my very well-paying corporate job to move to Asia for my wife's career, 
people just think you're crazy. Like, really? I couldn't. This is Some Scuffs, a podcast about navigating the perils of our complicated and confusing social world. My name is Lavelle Lee. Why do we still, in 2019, cling to the belief that only a man can be the primary provider and breadwinner? Is it so crazy to think that a man can prioritize his girlfriend or wife's professional success over his own in favor of more domestic goals? Some of the data on attitudes towards parenting is encouraging. Pew Research Center found that in America at least, there are now more than 2 million stay-at-home dads as compared to 1 million back in 1989. And 23% of those dads cited childcare as their primary reason for being at home, rather than because they couldn't find work or because they were ill or handicapped. That number was just 5% in 1989. But other studies suggest that there are still deeply entrenched ideas about how gender roles differ when it comes to parenting. In 2015, researchers in Australia and Germany found that even people who had progressive ideas about equality regressed to a more conservative stance once they became parents. After having their first child, both men and women were more likely to say that the women ought to be full-time carers for their kids. And men were less convinced that a working mom could have a good relationship with their children as compared to ones who stayed at home. The researchers argue that it wasn't because fathers rejected the notion of a stay-at-home dad. In fact, most of them thought it was a great idea. They just didn't feel that it was socially acceptable to pursue it. And the idea of a man giving up his high-paying job, packing up his life, and moving to a distant land to support his female partner? Well, you get, you get three types of reactions. You get the, really? I could never do that? That's so nice, right? That, that usually goes in the same sentence. I could never do that with, wow, that's impressive. Or, you know, it's like they, they consider it a, an accomplishment that you're willing to give up this job. Um, which I don't consider an accomplishment at all, but it's very easy. <laughs> but, you know, whatever makes them proud. Um, and then there's people who just think it's amazing, but, but the, those are in the, in the minority, right? But they think it's an amazing opportunity, and you know, you're going to find stuff to do there, and you're going to see Asia. That was, that was a mindset that I was in. And, um, yeah, then there's people who are who, who get really fixated on the fact that it's her career, right? Who just don't get over the fact that women can have high-power executive jobs and it's just emasculating to give up your job in favor of their career. It's just, it cannot be done. Why on earth would you do such a thing? What, what are we going to let them vote now and drive cars? It's completely crazy. See, in the U.S., and I, I never encountered that. And I was living in pretty small town of the United States and I, no one ever said like ah you know what are you a girly man uh, oh, they've never said it they, they don't no one's ever said that i, I never to me i never this. even felt it no no so bill claims that it isn't an issue in the u.s anymore and yet he still finds it very difficult to connect to other men when it comes to being a full-time dad but i'd say that the biggest social difficulty to all of it is is you have nothing to talk about with people 
So, you know, what do you do? You can't say you're a stay-at-home parent. You can, and then it's over. There's nothing to talk about. Zero. They don't care. They either just say, ah, that must be nice. Yeah, that's a little bit like, yeah, <laughs> fuck you too, right? Or they, they just stop and they walk away. I would say it's especially uninteresting to men, to a lot of men. Yeah, so if you want to talk about identity, men simply do not form identity around fatherhood. I guess, yeah. Women form identity around motherhood. What are you? I'm a mother. And that comes with a whole set of things, caregiver, whatever. I am a mom to so-and-so, right? Men never do that. As I've seen it, women get together and they talk about their kids. Men never get together and talk about their kids. I find the thought of your entire identity subsumed by parenthood horrifying. I don't want to lose myself when I become a mom. It seems unfair that most men don't face that identity crisis when they become dads. They get to keep their careers and their hobbies and interests. Maybe they don't feel the competing pulls of their parenting and work roles. They don't experience the strain of role conflict that so many women do. So they can focus on crafting their professional selves with a grand peace of mind. I ran this idea by the guys. Sometimes I think, what if, you know, one day I become a mom and then like, like I, if I quit a job, then am I anything more than just a mom? But you that know? implies that men don't become dads, right? And that's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. think traditionally, you know, maybe let's flip this around. So maybe it's less about employment identity and more about parent identity. Yeah, paternal and maternal identity. Towards, right. Yeah. And guys just don't feel it. They had some kids and they'll do the basics, but there's no identification with that role. I do know, actually. I think that's the most important thing in my life is doing a good job as a dad. If I fuck up as a dad, I would feel horrible on my deathbed, right? And I would not worry about any of this, these career things for a second. Yeah, right. I mean, you brought this person in the world. You shouldn't fuck it up. No, right. but it's the most and, important. And, they, and yeah. they don't exist there for your ego. There's this yeah, independent yeah. person, and you yeah. want to give them the tools to go out into the world and figure it out on their own. But oh, even just I mean, but that's a general parenting identification versus a fatherhood identification. This discussion speaks to the problem with traditionally defined masculinity, the prescribed notion of what being a man is an achievement-oriented and strong, if not emotionally detached leader, doesn't sit right with either Bill or Nikolai. And many other men similarly want to break free of this stereotype in favour of a more holistic view of the self that encompasses their relationships and family. What seems to be stopping a lot of men is the perceived consensus on male identity. They believe that society expects them to be career-minded, and this is reinforced in the conversations they have with other men. I wonder if these other men truly believe that their identity as fathers isn't as important as their professional identity, or if they too are simply parenting what they've heard before and what they think other men believe. I really like this quote because I think it's so true. I don't know who it's from. All I know is that Joe Rogan used to say it a lot in his older episodes. 
most men live lives of quiet desperation. And I think that is so true. That is so true. In the end, when you're in a corporate job that you didn't choose, because the job chooses you very often, right? Because you take it for money and opportunity, right? Because that's the thing you're chasing. So you're not chasing your passion or the thing that you want to do. It's like modern serfdom, I guess, right? Uh, where you almost don't have free will, right? You have to behave a certain way. You're not yourself. The whole day you're not yourself. The number of people who can remain themselves in a corporate role, there's a few and far in between. Because context is stronger than individual will. If you're there long enough, it will shape you and it will change you. And I think emotionally, it can hurt you, right? And you just, you have to cut everything off. Someone tells you that you have to work 80 hours a week, then you will work 80 hours a week and you will, you will rationalize whatever the impact of those 80 hours are. I've worked 80 hours a week before I had a family, right? And you, you roll into it, you start doing it. And then just, you don't even notice that you're going down. At some point you go, oh, I can't actually do this. <laughs> this is actually not good for me. <laughs> I think for guys, that is something that they embrace because it requires you to be tough and to almost have like this warrior mentality, right? That you can go out and you can win and you can go, you can go through it, right? You can work through the toughness and the pain and you can deliver and provide for your family, right? Whereas women are much more likely to go, fuck this, <laughs> this is not good at all. Like, what am I doing? It's you know, because you... women are smarter. <laughs> I know. That is I true. <laughs> that is objectively true. On the psychology thing, you said context is king. So it's what the system rewards. And in most contexts, the system rewards sociopaths and egomaniacs, right? That gets the job done. Right? Because it gets the job yeah. done. Because the ultimate defining trait of a top leader is ruthlessness. Yeah. You, you will do whatever you need to do to the human beings in your charge to deliver on the mission of the organization, whatever it is, profit, if it's military leaders, killing the other people, things like that. So if you're not a sociopath, <laughs> uh, the degree to which you're not a sociopath, I think you have less of that will to power, will to history, all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, the pursuit of success isn't strictly masculine. We all want to leave a legacy and make an imprint on the world around us, regardless of gender. These questions are universal, right? It's about self-fulfillment. It's about finding something in life that you like doing, finding a passion, figuring out how much of your time, which is limited, which is your greatest resource, are you willing to sacrifice to gain what amount of money? And what kind of agency does the money provide you? And right now, it's just that women are asking these questions a little bit less frequently because, you know, they're, they're still coming up, right? Let's deviate just for a minute to talk about feminism. To be successful in the workplace, women are told that they gotta be more like men, more ruthless and ambitious and less feminine. If you bring it back to, for example, the European roots of feminism, which lie in France, there's a very famous French writer, Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote a book called The Second Sex, which is basically the book that's at the very root of the French feminist movement. But she was focused on agency. That's where it started, right? Giving women the same agency as men. Meaning that they have the right to vote, that they have the right to work, they have the right to earn their own money and be independent of the patriarchy. 
right? Because who was calling all the shots? It was it was the guys, right? Which think about that for a moment, because that was not long ago. No, it was very the, very. Yeah. That was the institutional norm. Exactly. I mean, what bullshit? You know what she was fighting against? <laughs> Women were not allowed to become doctors. Women were not allowed into certain universities. Right? Yeah, just and this is the fifties. Yes. Right. Yes. 50s, this is the nineteen fifties. Yeah, yeah. So we're not even a century removed right. from this kind of bullshit. So now we have agency, right? We have equal agency, sort of, between men and women. And you can argue whether or not there's equal pay. Provided that women man up, of course. Positive traits that are considered traditionally feminine. Empathy, compassion, nurturance, and agreeableness. They are discounted or largely ignored in a corporate setting by both men and women. And research suggests that both genders still consider traits like leadership and competence to be masculine. Why? Well, I think it's still early days, though, right? I think women are pursuing these ideals because that's the example they were given. Women think that to be leaders, they must exhibit masculine traits because for decades, the only example of leaders they had was men. And that's not the best way to go. It's just that most men don't have the same tool set that women do potentially, and that they do it their way. And that's just something that they're going to have to figure out. That society is going to have to figure out whether or not these things can be achieved in different ways. I think they can. I think many companies are showing that they can. We're talking departments focused on promoting diversity and inclusion, and big plans to change corporate culture and embrace vulnerability, as we talked about in an earlier episode. I guess you can say that the office environment is finally starting to embrace femininity and let go of idealized masculinity. So where does that leave masculinity? The phrase toxic masculinity is perhaps some indication of the valence the word has taken on. Some men feel threatened by the rise of women's social status and rebel by trying to suppress women and put them in their place. And feminists retaliate by calling out such behavior on social media, in op-eds, and even in high-profile legal battles. It seems like the feminists are winning. Nowadays, it is not okay to make unwanted sexual advances or inappropriate comments about a woman's appearance or discriminate against them on the basis of their sex. Men are expected to behave decently, at least. (laughs) We set the bar pretty low for them, didn't we? So is there still a need to talk about toxic masculinity and this problem men seem to have with female empowerment? Who better to ask than two white heterosexual men, right? Well, here's what Bill thinks. Toxic masculinity, for me, is a synonym for asshole. If you're out there being some super macho whatever and you're justifying it because of your private parts, actually, you're just an asshole. Yeah, you, get over yourself, you can totally dude. Totally leave those private parts out of the discussion. Actually. Yes, yeah. you're just an asshole. Because there's bitches as well, actually. Yeah. So, so you have to go down this path. So, if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity, men can say, "Well, there's toxic femininity. They they're backbiting. Uh, you got to watch them. They all talk to one another, and you have to be really careful. And they're going to manipulate things. And Don't we all look at this and go, "No, fuck that. That's just manipulative people." 
So yeah, it is. It's just it's just shitty people. What Bill and Nikolai are advocating for is to take gender out of the equation entirely. To be fair, they aren't exactly benefiting from gender stereotypes since they haven't taken on gender-conforming roles. So I think that lends their comments a great deal of legitimacy. You know, and maybe it's the Enlightenment person in me, but I don't particularly like gender-based discussions. I agree. I, I like to just say, okay, we're all human beings. We all have similar needs, close enough, right? You don't want to be stupid about it. There are obviously differences, but really, in the end, we're pretty malleable, right, as human beings, and we all have similar aspirations and similar needs, certainly. And when you put the gender overlay on it, to me, it's forced on. So for me, I, I just my ego was never tied up in what is masculine or what isn't. I suppose where the masculinity comes out is if anybody ever got in my face and said, hey, girly man, I would say, fuck you. <laughs> you it gets your back up, so you're more tempted to fight them. But in terms of like feeling it and I'm crushed by this, uh, this lack of identity, no. I mean, it was a rational choice. It's like her career's taken off. I can kind of see where my income potential is. There's nothing male or female about it. We're accomplishing this together as a couple. So let's just get this done. I understand why we look at things through the gender lens quite a bit, but I sometimes think it's too much. There's that gender-neutral part of me. Now, why can I talk about that at all? It's because we have come so far in crushing these obvious, glaring, bullshit things of like, well, you're a woman, you can't vote. What? You know, you, you, well, you can't work in that job. What? Right? Yeah, yeah. And the only reason we can even start to talk about that I can even credibly, I feel, start to talk about this non-gendered viewpoint on the world is because we've gotten rid of all of that crap in mainstream culture. Obviously, there are still pockets and certain cultures that live that way, but we've crushed a lot of that stuff, squeezed it out of the system. So I feel like we can, in a more gender-neutral way, talk about assholes. Nikolai agrees. Yeah, and I think actually the only way to really move forward is by forgetting all of it. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, right? And even as a guy, right, you can discuss between two guys who's taller. Is that going to benefit him in the corporate world? Yeah, probably. Right? Probably. But, you know, in order to move forward, you have to get over that. As long as there's no obvious hurdles in place to prevent you from doing what it is that you want to do and pursuing the agency that you need to reach self-fulfillment, you should just run with it and go. And everybody has hurdles. Everybody has their own weaknesses. Everybody's going to run into their own challenges, right? Whether you're a man or a woman. And it's not a level playing field, right? Between individuals, men or women. So just run with it and do whatever it is you want to do and make it happen and stop talking about why it won't work. Yeah, and, and of course we, we, get, we get accused of having privilege to be able to say that, but... It depends on how you look at it, man. It depends on how you look at it. I don't... I mean, I, I think from the outside, if you look at me, you could say, okay, he's saying that. He's white privilege. Uh, he's a male living, a, living the good life in Singapore. You're tall. I'm tall. I'm blonde. I have blue eyes. Um, extremely handsome. Yes. <laughs> just we won't post a picture. <laughs> no pictures, obviously. Just take my word for it. Yes. Um, so you know, so so yeah, you could think that it's privileged, 
but only if you ignore all the details, right? Only if you look at it very superficially and you don't take the time to look into the situation more. And oh, maybe I'm not that privileged. What does it mean to be a man? Does it mean universally recognized status? Does it mean automatic privilege, whatever your lot in life, wherever you go? I did struggle in the beginning coming here because I came here with a job lined up uh, that didn't work out. Then I had a hard time finding another one. And I was like, okay, so what, what am I doing now? What does that mean? You, know, you have this tuck because you were doing something else. But that was just a tuck for doing something that's fulfilling. Because right? I felt the same way when I was working for a big corporate. Like, I was, I was going, what am I doing? <laughs> where are yeah. you going? Like, is, is like, is this fulfilling to me? Right? Is this what I want to do with my life? If I still work there in ten years, oh my god! Right? Uh, I love my colleagues. I, I love my job. But, but I had this, this other kind of tug, going. Oh my god, dude! What are you doing? You're selling your life. You know, you're selling out. <laughs> when you die, is this what you want to leave as a legacy to your kid? Uh, I worked in an office for all my life, and they gave me a watch. Well, and this is where you get into the quiet desperation. Right, yeah. If you're still caught up in the exact same system, you might be relatively winning, but it doesn't mean that you feel good. Fortunately, Bill and Nikolai have a defense strategy that protects them against harmful ideas about gender identity that calls their unique circumstances as stay-at-home dads or as trailing spouses into question. Already, being out here on your own is lonely. Your wife is busy with her high-paying job. You're settling into an unfamiliar environment. Your friends are all in a different country. Other male foreigners in Singapore are usually here for their own careers. It's difficult to meet people who can understand your situation. And sure, there are many expat wife associations here. If you're an expat husband, where do you turn? Oh, the secret society. Yes, indeed. Are we even allowed to talk about it? We'll have to kill one another if we talk about it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, I so know you are. I'd lose. <laughs> <laughs> so we met each other through this uh, thing called the, the Singapore Overbooked Men's Association, which is basically just a meetup group yeah. um, that is targeting trailing male spouses. So people, who, uh, guys like us who come here for their wife's job, we welcome them to Singapore, or we help them out with our own little network, uh, we help them find a place for themselves here and uh, hook them up with friendships, basically, right? It's a place to meet people in a similar situation. Yeah, and I was in on the early days of the development of that group here in Singapore. The male trailing spouse meetup group was started around the time Bill got to Singapore. I met a few of these guys through the American Club, actually, here, and developed it into this wider network of people and expanded out this way of connecting with people. It started as an email list, became a meetup group. There's probably at any given time maybe 20, 25 active guys, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And we've probably had a couple hundred go through the group over that time. But of course people cycle in, cycle out. Some people sample it, don't like it. Don't like associating with other people in that situation. For other people it's a lifeline. And those folks have become my best friends here. And so there was this initial crew, and I'm still friends. Many of them have actually moved on. 
and then new people come along and you develop new friendships. So it was not something I sought, but once it got created, it was incredible that it created these friendships and networks. So it's just kind of been a lucky accident. When you found your tribe, it's easier to be comfortable with who you are because the group identity reinforces your own self-concept. And the community also provides crucial social support to withstand the scrutiny and criticism from the outside world. Who cares what the rest of the world thinks if you know that your brothers have your back? But this group isn't their only source of support. Nikolai explains. I guess also because my parents were a little bit weird. So they both come from very artistic backgrounds. So my mom, she was a professional dancer, professional ballerina. My, my dad was an opera singer. And so I'm lucky in the sense that they definitely support whatever I do. 100 They don't evaluate me on a scale that would drive me into these other kinds of decisions. So I guess I'm just very fortunate in that way. That allows me to take risks in that sense without feeling that I'm jeopardizing their respect or their love for me. Whereas you, you sometimes hear that, right? You hear people say, yeah, my parents wanted me to do this. Right? They're very disappointed that I didn't. Right? And yeah, that's never been a part of our relationship, of our conversations. I, I guess in that sense, I, I owe them. And if they had a different attitude, I'm surely I would have felt differently. Because to be honest, they're the only persons that I would ever listen to in terms of opinion of me. So I would say my wife, my kid, my parents, and the rest of the world can just, you know, do whatever they want with their opinion. I don't particularly care for it. Bill's got his own secret weapon to dispel society's expectations. His wife, Margaret. For me, I think it's important that you you have a partner in crime. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. you know, it, yeah, it is. My wife and I were simpatico on all this. So it was, in some way, it was never me making the decision on my own. There were a team of us, right? There was a pair of us making these decisions for us. And that inherently feels less risky when you have someone along for the ride. So I, I think that was a big part of it. And outside of that, I can't really explain where it came from, but it, it just, yeah, the rest of the world kind of just didn't matter. Yeah, like, it, right. it didn't even come into the equation. Yeah. We're witnessing the fourth wave of feminism right now, with the Me Too movement sweeping even the most conservative countries like India and Iran. And somewhere along the way, masculinity lost its valor. I think the perjuration of masculinity isn't helpful in achieving gender equality because it's just pitting men and women against each other rather than bringing them together for a common cause. Maybe we need to start talking about empowered masculinity. Long ago, feminist scholars like Sandra Bim reframed the construct of gender as multidimensional with individuals able to possess both masculine and feminine traits at once. Yet, we still talk about them like they are binary. Either girly or boyish, ying or yang, sweet or assertive, with one end of the scale preferred over the other. Masculine characteristics are no better or worse than feminine ones. And men 
and not the enemy. I say this as a feminist. Masculinity isn't the antithesis of feminism, and we don't need to feel threatened by it anymore. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to Bill and Nikolai for coming on the show. They are the co-hosts of a really great local podcast called We Don't Mean to Dwell, But. And in it, they share about their experience as expatriates living in Singapore. It's really entertaining and funny and they always have really, really cool guests. Like me, ha, huh, because um, I'm cool. <laughs> Okay, no, yeah, I did an episode a while back where we talked about the differences in how we approach mental illness in Asia and the West. You can find the links in the show notes. Theme music for the podcast was by Sobs, and sound design was by Lee Jaren. <laughs>